0: Welcome to the Something About Science podcast. My name is Megan from Azo Nano, and I'm joined by Skylar from Azon and Danielle from News Medical. We'll be bringing you a roundup of the latest research that is piquing our interest and our set of specific sites. Try saying that one over and over again. This time, we talk about conferences and
1: Danielle's exploration of antimicrobial awareness, the relationship between AI and scientific publishing, ancient Egyptian papyrus, and bad news for London Underground commuters.
2: So I wanted to start today's talk with to speak about a conference that I went to last week. So last week I attended the 2023 BioInfect Conference held at Alderley Park. And as members of the editorial team, we attend conferences and trade shows fairly regularly. And they're a great opportunity to connect with those in the particular research field that the conference forward slash trade show is focused on and gain insights expert knowledge just to learn things we wouldn't normally get to learn and I feel like as well it's a great opportunity to connect in real life uh, we do just interviews and they're sort of over a screen or sometimes we don't even interact with the person at all it's just all over email so I think it's great to actually meet someone and sometimes the conversations like we know with this podcast can go in different directions and they end up being really fruitful insightful
1: yeah i mean i always love going to trade shows a lot of the time it's to do with a specific industry but it's not just people kind of talking about or promoting their products a lot of the time it's new research and people are so passionate about what they're presenting and they're usually really keen to talk to you it's really cool going from an editorial perspective as well because you just have really interesting engaging honest conversations about why they think their new innovation is so spectacular I think it's really a chance of people to talk to us about why we should care about what they're doing. That sounds kind of obvious, but I think it's just such a great opportunity to, like you say, kind of take things away from the computer and away from maybe like the sales aspects and just discuss the ins and outs of the technology
0: itself. Yeah, no, like I completely agree with like both what Danielle and Skylar said. And I think as well for, I suppose this might be like a form of advice really, but any kind of young professional at the beginning of their career. I'm a big believer that conferences, um, trade shows, careers fairs, like, you know, any that you can get to are such a great opportunity to just get out there. It's not even about networking sometimes. It's like kind of Danielle saying about just learning things that you wouldn't normally do. And with what Skylar said about just interacting with researchers or people in the sector and seeing how passionate they are about it. I think it's really hard to get that true insight from just things online i think they are like a really great opportunity and it's lovely that we get to go and do them
1: completely agree with what you said and i also think that it's fascinating seeing clean technologies make their way into all different types of trade shows and conferences not necessarily just clean technology shows which are also really fascinating i went to one in cologne in november and just seeing all of the new innovations and materials research and plastic packaging it's just so exciting to see so many new innovations in these spaces, but it also infiltrates everything from, I don't know, uh, trade shows to do with the chemical industry, advanced material shows, that kind of stuff. I love seeing, I think one of my favorite things is seeing how people are, I don't want to use the word innovating again, but innovating for the planet and for the future rather than just right now. I think that's one of my favourite things seeing at trade shows recently.
0: No, definitely. And I think with any kind of like large event like this representing a particular sector or group of industries, it's such a great way to highlight prominent issues because obviously the conference that Danielle went to was all about antimicrobial resistance. So, what is it, Danielle? What is antimicrobial resistance? Could you explain it to our listeners?
2: So I think almost everyone listening will have been prescribed antibiotics at some point in their life, um, perhaps more than once. And the way that this works is sort of a perfect example of natural selection, that within any species of bacteria, there is genetic variation. And it just so happens that a subpopulation of a certain population of bacteria will be resistant to those antibiotics which eventually allows that sort of population to proliferate and become extremely successful because there's no antibiotics to kill them. So that's what antibiotic resistance is. And it's a huge issue because of sort of systemic overuse of antibiotics, not just in humans and not just with doctors overprescribing antibiotics to patients, but it's across sectors. So one sector where it's particularly prevalent is the farming industry, and actually a lot of animals are given antibiotics, and there's a lot of antibiotic resistance in agriculture. I actually spoke with the Alliance to Save Our Antibiotics for last year's World Antimicrobial Awareness Week, and they spoke about that in depth, and that's an interview you can find on News Medical. So it's incredibly important to raise awareness for this issue, because like I said, it impacts you know industries such as agriculture, which are huge economically. But it also impacts individuals, which is really significant and I'm going to speak about it a little bit later. I just wanted to highlight that the World Health Organization declared AMR, which is antimicrobial resistance, as one of the top 10 global public health threats facing humanity. So that puts it into perspective, I think. It is, it's a huge deal and it deserves a huge amount of attention. So the conference that I went to addressed the critical issues in antimicrobial resistance in terms of the challenges of finding new anti-infectives and the endemic problem of resistance. And I did that through keynote speakers and panels and also a patient perspective. I was lucky enough to actually speak to a few of the speakers at the conference to learn a bit more about their work and what they were there to present, but I wanted to speak about things from a science communication perspective because, like we said at the top of this discussion, we're there from an editorial point of view and I wanted to speak about how, because obviously all this amazing science is being done, but the purpose of the conference is to communicate that the science that's happening to other researchers, you know, build potential relationships, potential um, collaborations. Um, So I just wanted to speak a bit about science communication and the things that were presented at the show. The first one being a citizen science project called Swab and Send. And I know Megan is particularly excited for this one because I did mention it to her before the record. Just a bit of background, citizen science is scientific research conducted with participation from the public. Those in the public who may not have even, like, experience
0: with the science and engineering kind yeah. of, like, industry or sector.
2: I mean, how many people, like, know a research scientist personally, like... Can anyone get involved with it? Is it open? Yeah,
0: yeah so there's... The great thing about citizen science is that there's often a lot of local initiatives okay. and, like, community initiatives. And it really could range from anything between... I suppose, like counting the number of species in perhaps a local
2: park. Yeah, it's popular in ecology especially because it's that accessibility and also often if it's involving like plants or animals, children are often quite engaged. Yeah, sure. so it's
1: for all age groups as well okay
2: all age groups and that's citizen science in general but this initiative was called swab and send and basically what it involved was a member of the public swabbing say a water bottle or a table leg and then sending that swab out to swab and send so it's got a very descriptive (laughs) title it does what it says on the tin and then the group of researchers that would eventually receive the swab would use normal aseptic technique that is known by microbiologists all over the world. And it's a very like well-practiced technique. So they would wipe the swab on a petri dish and then wait for the bacterial cultures to grow. Now, what will happen is there'll be zones of inhibition. And what that means is that an antimicrobial substance is present And the bacteria will have stopped growing around the spread of that antimicrobial substance. So the researchers then can investigate that substance possibly further and it might lead to novel antimicrobials in the future. So it's sort of like (laughs) the general public are doing the brunt work almost. But I know we were speaking before this record about how difficult it is for researchers to get money. And for grants and the spending of money is incredibly complicated in the research world. So sort of anything that can sort of kill two birds with one stone in the fact that it's engaging the public, but it's also saving a bit of money is probably a good thing.
1: I know you've said that the aim is kind of to find new substance yeah, is that yeah, the right yeah. word yeah, okay, sure um or compounds? There, or compounds sure i think that's what i was looking for <laughs> is there anything in particular any specific ones that they're hoping to find or is it just looking for things that are novel
2: there is can i remember it <laughs> sorry to put you on the spot uh, it's all right um i'll do a fact check real time fact check
0: there are some lists and MRSA was one okay <laughs>
2: i am corrected <laughs>
0: <laughs> but there's also some vre which is vancomycin resistant Enterococcus, multi drug resistant Mycobacterium TB. And then there's a bunch of others as well. So, if anyone's interested in this topic and they'd like to know, just I'd say the best things to look for online are resistant species of bacteria or antibiotic resistant bacteria. This particular topic is quite prevalent in hospital settings as well, where obviously the risk is slightly higher for any kind of antibiotic resistant infections.
2: And probably an important thing to note is the current antimicrobials that we have come based on microbes that come from the soil. But the idea is if we swab sort of random surfaces, obviously each microbe is evolved to live on the surface that it lives on. So we might just be looking in the wrong places.
1: Interesting. And I think you mentioned that there's also like a learning hub on the Swab and Send website.
2: On the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, there's a page that will provide you for more information.
1: Tell us some more about the conference,
2: (laughs) I mentioned this a few moments ago, but something that they had at the conference, which I think was really important, was a patient perspective. So the mother of a boy with cystic fibrosis spoke so eloquently about the impact that antimicrobial resistance is having on his treatment plan. For those of you who aren't aware, cystic fibrosis is a genetic condition and it means that you're so much more susceptible to microbial infections. So if you do get an infection, it is incredibly dangerous. So often patients have to be on antimicrobials for life. And obviously those treatment plans have to be adjusted if certain populations within their lungs become resistant. Uh, So it's an incredibly complicated disease. And something that I didn't fully appreciate before this perspective was the fact that cystic fibrosis patients can't actually interact with other cystic fibrosis patients in person because they might exchange those resistant populations between one another. So I just thought that was a really important thing for people to be aware of because I don't think it's common knowledge. And I think naturally as humans we want to relate to people that maybe we share something with and they're unable to do that in person and I think the advent of things like zoom and since the pandemic has probably really improved that so I think that was incredibly important and obviously I was at a medical conference and the whole point in medicine is helping individual people and individual patients so I thought it was really refreshing Obviously, we were talking about science the whole day and some things in the lab feel incredibly far away from, from people. So I thought that was really great. No, I'm really glad you said that, Danielle. I didn't know that
0: about cystic fibrosis patients. You're right. You're completely right in what you say about how often like, the research that we do is very disconnected from where it's going to make an impact it's not often that you get that patient perspective even because we've been able to have the opportunity to visit different trade shows that do focus on the life and biomedical sciences and as far as I'm aware like I can't really remember there being a focus on that despite all the different innovations whether it's in treatment or in diagnosis so I'm really glad to hear that there is at least a little bit of a movement towards including that in these events.
2: Yeah, I've just actually done, it was recently World Cancer Day when we were recording and one of the researchers that I interviewed for World Cancer Day actually said, you know, how important it is to listen to the patient voice and the patient experience in informing treatment and development of drugs. So it seems to be like a, it's not just an infectious disease that the patient perspective is appreciated and, and acknowledged. It's across the, the medical sciences.
1: I think that's something I really enjoy at like going to medical and biomedical trade shows. I mean I've only been to one but from what I, from <laughs> what I saw that I feel that medical and biomedical research is so much more personal in terms of the way that it impacts people's lives and the motivation for the research in a way that physical sciences, not that it can't also help people but I think it can be a lot more detached from having a real personal impact so even just in much smaller ways but you know going to trade shows and seeing I don't know like a different type of physiotape that they've adapted to different skin tones it's a small thing but it directly improves the lives or the use of of something for a community of people and just those kind of very direct impacts on people is something that I think I really appreciate about when we engage with biomedical and medical research.
2: I had the absolute privilege of speaking to an incredibly dynamic speaker in Janet Hemingway. She was one of the keynote speakers at the conference and she also was part of a panel as well. She's the former director of the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and also the founding director for the CEO of ICON, which is the Centre for Infection Innovation. Janet spoke amazingly about her 40-year career in infectious disease. I asked her in particular about the impact that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on people's opinions on vaccines and infectious disease, their knowledge of infectious disease. There's too much out there in terms of negative um, noises coming through sometimes, and and that's the downside of social media. And we need to be able to, to make sure that communities actually get the factually correct messages and those communities spread those messages between themselves. So if you actually just try and and push a message out there as an academic, there is sometimes a level of, of distrust about that. If somebody from your own community is telling you this is a good thing, here was my experience, here's what happened, here's why it would be a good thing for you, I think that's a much more powerful message. So I spoke to her about that and one thing that she spoke about was a science outreach project that she was part of at ICON and it dealt with certain populations in the city of Liverpool who had an element of vaccine hesitancy. She mentioned that they included but not were not exclusive to uh, pregnant women and men in their 40s to 60s and basically the issue or the limitation was that researchers and clinicians were saying get the vaccine the, the COVID-19 vaccine and that's all very well and good but sometimes you want to hear it from people who are on your level your peers and um, people who come from the same town as you who experience the same things as you so they employed an illustrator to go around the streets of Liverpool to interview people about their opinions on the, co- on the COVID-19 vaccine any hesitancy they may have and they illustrated this lovely poster with and it's sort of like related to people and I thought it was a great example of how important science communication is and a really important issue such as vaccine hesitancy as I'm sure we know having a vaccine doesn't just protect you it protects the people around you so it's incredibly important and it made me think I know I've mentioned Brian Eno on the podcast before but <laughs> it's coming back. <laughs> Brian Eno said science discovers and art digests so it's science's job to discover things and then you take a step back and things like art can help you digest and that's my little spiel over. <laughs> I like
1: that and yeah. especially I think it's interesting that this keeps coming up in all our episodes it's a running theme this idea of effective scientific communication and encouraging literacy but it's important to make sure that that science is something that everyone can participate in and looking for new routes to do that such as through art is is really cool and it's uh, it's definitely something we should be thinking about because it's basically using another language isn't it to communicate and being able to to put what you're trying to say in different languages is always going to reach a greater number of people
0: On topic of science communication, one thing that I kind of thought might be interesting to bring to the podcast table today is looking at how open access science and AI link. So over the past few months, chat GPT and AI technologies as a result have been brought firmly into the public debate. As a large language model based program, chat GPT owes its wealth of knowledge and ability to respond like a human to different texts, images and media that it is trained on. From one end of the spectrum, many owners of this media resources you might have heard of the ongoing AI art debate are unhappy that their work is being used to feed these programs free of charge, often to create an almost copy of the original work, which obviously can lead to a whole lot of issues regarding copyright. But one topic that I think is particularly interesting and that kind of takes a different angle looking at it, and is hence why I commissioned an article to feature on our ASA Robotics website, is the role open access science can have on AI and the mutually beneficial partnership this might have. So, the term open access refers to the principles and practices that allow research outputs to be distributed online without access barriers or fees. Traditionally, publishing models acquire the copyright of articles from authors, much like the relationship between book authors and publishing houses, in exchange for publishing rights. These journals would then distribute the articles worldwide and would only be accessible through paid subscriptions. Now, for those who are unfamiliar, the rise of open access science has been praised across the scientific and engineering community. Obviously, there are many benefits to this, but concerns still remain over how inclusive the open access movement actually is. So I kind of did a bit of research and, for example, most open access journals use a model where research authors are charged to publish their findings. This is very, very common. And some of the larger journals, such as SAR reports, for example, has an article processing charge that is on their website defined as the money paid by those submitting the research to open access journals that ranges anywhere between $1,700 to about $9900. And this is excluding tax. So kind of bringing us back to AI, I thought I'd share some examples of where open access science and AI partnerships could actually be something that could be good. So for example, we kind of talk about in the article about one particular initiative called Semantic Scholar and it's an AI powered research tool that is helping to make scientific breakthroughs easier by aiding researchers to find and understand critical research findings. So the AI model is classed as a natural language processing model which is the umbrella that ChatGBT software kind of belongs under. So, Semantic Scholar created the COVID-19 Open Research Dataset, also known as CORD-19. And they did this in collaboration with NIH, Microsoft, and several different research groups. So, the whole aims of CORD is that it hopes to create or act as a blueprint for addressing some of the big global challenges, and it also helps to act as an example. Of where natural language processing software could actually benefit society you know it might not always be something that could be detrimental so kind of linking it all back to kind of open access science the whole point is that basically by having access to large amounts of scientific data and research the AI algorithms, so what they're actually trained on, if they have more, they might actually be able to analyse and extract better insights, which could potentially lead to new breakthroughs and advancements and just kind of generally benefit the science and engineering community as a whole. That's really interesting i used to
1: work as an editor for an open access publisher and i know that a lot of the time institutions kind of absorb the costs of submitting the research but in not in every case and i didn't realize that it was upwards of nine thousand dollars that's an insane amount i was completely naive to that fact And it's interesting as well, I feel like all of these debates about AI at the moment focus a lot on artwork and and learning and plagiarism and everything like that. And I know you did mention that briefly, but it's interesting that, I mean, I didn't even think about how AI could interrelate with publishing or scientific access. So it's cool that you've thought about this different avenue that maybe hasn't been brought into the conversation yet. So I, I appreciated that. I thought that was really interesting.
2: I think it's fascinating how complicated of an issue this is like like you said at the top of your discussion Megan. One thing that I was mindful of was that I saw a recent nature article that that said ChatGPT listed as author on research papers many scientists disapprove. It's just interesting to see how AI in different formats has those different reactions from from researchers and it's just It's an incredibly complex issue that won't be going anywhere anytime soon.
0: I think one thing to kind of also like build on what you said there, Danielle, is the fact that, you know, there's a lot of PhD students or undergrad students that contribute and help on research papers that aren't always listed as an author. And, you know, whether that's analysing data, whether that's even proofreading things and talking about the benefits, kind of talking about that particular topic in general it is a bit scary to think about maybe how that role and experience as a result might be eradicated by the development of these technologies so it is like you say it's a very complicated topic and um, i thought sort i'd of, you know highlight it
1: i've heard that the university of manchester is doing a lot more of his exams now in person that were previously done online so that and they're blocking ai software on the computers that it's done on just to avoid that issue So even if they're done online, you have to be physically in the room and it's a controlled environment. So it's interesting that, you know, we swung from doing in-person exams to almost everything being online. And now because of this new development, we're going back to being in person. It's almost like technology has kind of brought us back around full circle. (laughs) But yeah, it's interesting. I did an article on Build about the use of AI in architectural initial concepts and that initial concept phase and how it can be used as a creative tool so you might feed it certain words or briefs and say design me something based on this idea and it will create something and the article talked a lot about the way it would I think the words were used free up labor and I didn't really like that that much because that massively just squashes the a really big debate on whether we should be freeing up
0: labor and giving it to computers and you're exactly right there's a lot of architectural students or architectural grads that are that's what they work on you know they work on these projects and yeah they might not be name-dropped but they do work on it and it's really really important experience that any young professional gains as part of their career. Mm, For sure and I
1: think the argument of the article is basically that by making this initial concept phase quicker humans can come in and have more time to focus on the things that AI might maybe can't do such as the structural elements, the safety elements, the actual physical planning and building, but that almost, in some ways, diminishes the the creative aspect that is a massive part of architecture. I mean, when you see a building and it's beautiful, you don't think, "Oh, I wonder if that could, you know, if that support is uh, made of made of reinforced steel or not." And is, yeah, it, <laughs> is it? Yeah. I mean, it would be great if the if buildings are also safe. But <laughs> my point was. <laughs> that what really strikes us and I think what makes especially me interested in architecture as a discipline and as a field is you know how how things are beautiful and how things blend into our built Mm -hmm, environment and it's interesting that taking that away potentially from humans and giving it to a computer I don't know it's just it's obviously the very beginning of a conversation and something that's gonna keep folding out over the coming years but But there's just so many, so many, almost every field that AI is just going to change in one way or another. So I imagine this won't be the last time that we're talking about it. Probably not. So I'm going to move us away from science communication. But, I mean, this is relevant to a lot of people. So here I am communicating some science. I have bad news for London commuters. I'm going to be talking about the TFL, the London Underground. And basically, a new study by the University of Cambridge has been looking at the composition, size and mineralogy of iron-containing particles in the air of the London Underground. So I don't think it's a shock to anyone that the air quality in the underground isn't great. Several studies have already shown that air pollution on the underground is higher than World Health Organization health standards. Which immediately isn't great. Oh, that's bad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And most of the particulate pollution is iron-rich particles, which come from the brakes and rails of the trains. Usually, standard air filters are used to measure pollution levels, but these can't catch ultra-fine particles, and they can't tell what types of particles are contained in the particle matter. So in the new study, 39 samples from TFL were analysed. And the reason I originally looked at this study and included it on our azooptics.com site is because of the techniques that they used, which included low temperature high temperature and room temperature magnetic techniques first order reversal curves scanning electron microscopy energy dispersive x-ray spectroscopy transmission electron microscopy and three-dimensional electron tomography that
0: is a materials analysis bingo card if i've ever seen one
1: isn't it is it. fantastic and they discovered a significant number of magamite particles which ranged in size and these magamites i think i'm pronouncing that correctly particles are in the family of iron oxides again so basically the underground has a very high level of particulate matter pollution with a high concentration of iron and iron oxides can pose a risk to your health because they lead to oxidative stress and in general exposure to fine particulate matter is associated with impaired cognitive function lung cancer dementia brain damage asthmatic health problems Also, magnetite, another iron oxide, has been associated in previous research with degenerative brain diseases like Alzheimer's. So it's not great, but the good news is there are things that can help. So the researchers have said that cleaning the tracks and tunnel walls and also putting in more screen doors between platforms and trains, I know they do have that at some stations already, or using magnetic filters and ventilation could help reduce the amount of pollution. I also wonder if wearing a mask and particular types of mask might help shield you a bit from this kind of particular matter but i don't know about you guys but i was reading this study and i was like oh god is this
2: allowed <laughs> i'm just getting like ptsd flashbacks to being on the underground when it's so warm because i feel like when it, the temperature is really hot it it makes the pollution and like you can Mm. feel the particles and stuff and like it's just so gross but yeah this doesn't surprise me and I hope they can do some things to improve it because how many people take the underground every day?
1: Every single day you'd think that this would be a bigger I mean we know that air pollution in London and, and in Manchester and many major cities isn't great but the fact that the underground is so much worse than the whole of the rest of London and I think even just standing on the side of the tracks compared to being in the ticket hall is just immensely worse for your health.
0: It's weird, isn't it? I feel like sometimes it's almost as if it's forgotten about yeah. compared to kind of like, you know, air pollution, like... Um, uh, at above the street ground. level. Yeah. yeah, it's almost as if it's, it's a shame. It's almost as if people just accept the fact that, yeah, it's got to be gross. That's just the way it is. Yeah. When really, you know, there's a lot of people that are spending like upwards and over an hour on their commute twice a day, five days a week. And it should be considered a public health issue, just like how... Air quality is a public health issue yeah I mean
1: just because it's been around for such a long time doesn't mean we shouldn't improve it Mm -hmm. I was gonna say I love the crossover between
2: like public health and uh, yeah
1: there you go (laughs) but my next one will not link at all I love this one I'm so excited (laughs) I'm so excited about this one however there are multiple words in here that I've had to practice pronouncing we've had to ask our French colleague Louis how to pronounce the name of the museum Musée Champollion. <laughs> in this segment, I'm going to be talking about combining microscopy and spectroscopy to analyze ancient Egyptian papyrus. So the Musée Champollion, beautiful in France, <laughs> has ancient Egyptian papyrus from the Book of the Dead. The Book of the Dead is a modern term that we use to refer to a series of ancient Egyptian writings that help the deceased find their way to the afterlife in order to become united with the god of the dead, Osiris, and. The researchers in this study combined different analytical methods. Again, I'm going to reel through them again. (laughs) This time, optical microscopy, Raman spectroscopy, (laughs) synchrotron (laughs) x-ray powder diffraction, and x-ray fluorescence. Bingo. (laughs) (laughs) These are non-destructive methods that are often employed in archaeology and forensics. And what was basically found was that this research confirmed that the illustration methods were the same as those used for wall murals. So this basically involves a base red hematite drawing Mm -hmm. colouring in with various pigments known to be used at the time. And then also a final black line drawing with carbon based ink over the top. And what's cool is that the research showed that the final black line is sometimes very different to the first sketch, which experts have said is a sign of individual creativity, which basically means that individual artistic intent played a massive part in papyrus creation. So, in terms of how the analysis methods revealed certain things, the X-ray fluorescence analysis also showed that iron, lead, copper, arsenic, and mercury were the main chemical elements in the papyrus. And X-ray diffraction showed that, okay, and here's a difficult pronunciation, hematites, cuprovates, atacomite, orpiment, realgar, and chalicolite, I think, <laughs> were the main pigments used for colour. And then Raman spectroscopy confirmed that the black lines were made with flame carbon. So our writer Ben Pilkington, who produced the piece for us on asooptics.com, said in this study at the end that the research shows a balance of standardization and creativity, which I thought was particularly cogent because basically there seems to be this defined method in terms of the order of the process the overarching style and the materials used. But within that, there's evidence of this individual artistic intent, which I referred to before, which is honestly kind of amazing that in 2022, 2023, we can use these analysis methods to tell us a bit more about an artistic and creative process from so long ago. I just think, A, it's amazing that we found out more about the creative processes, but B, just even just the materials that we used. It's really fascinating. I I, I loved this study. It was really cool.
2: I was wondering whether like your personal enjoyment of this study came from your anthropology background at all? Yeah, maybe.
1: I mean, it's always interesting looking back towards the past. I think most of my anthropology background is based on ethnography really from more modern times or if it does go back it kind of goes back to the inception of anthropology kind of in the early 20th century but That doesn't mean that I'm not absolutely fascinated by cultures from the past as well. And I I love stories like this because it's kind of an intersection between different disciplines. Again, like using all of these material analysis techniques or optical analysis techniques to tell us something about important about archaeology. And it's just amazing. I loved it. This is like my favorite type of story when you get that convergence. And yeah, I love learning things about the past. It's like when you told us about Neanderthals. I love that as well. Yeah,
2: that's what it reminded me of. And it also reminded me of the intersection of science and history, like when I spoke about um, gout and how it's a 21st century epidemic. But yeah, I've recently become aware of the field of archaeological forensics, and that's Mm. similar in that intersection between sort of like ancient civilization and science. It's really, really fascinating. Yeah, really cool.
1: And that field massively relies on these non destructive analytical methods. So, yeah, definitely something that we've covered before on the site and will continue to as well, just because I'm so interested in yeah. it.
0: <laughs> I think that's fair, and I completely agree. It's just, it's so fascinating. And I think when you actually look at, like, how far back these civilizations were, and then it's like you say, look at the analytical methods that we're currently using in modern day, I think just the amount of information that we can continue to get, even if something's been damaged or it's just not really stood up to kind of time it is amazing like what we can do and like what we can infer and I think anyone who has that profession it just it must be just absolutely fascinating to be able to analyze it.
1: Yeah especially just making a discovery like this because I mean the discovery that they had a creative process is it's not much of a discovery like they were an advanced civilization like obviously they had creativity and artwork and everything but for me it was more the fact that using you know Raman spectroscopy means that We can
0: prove that. That's the most amazing thing. If you enjoyed listening, please think about leaving a review on your podcast provider, sharing this episode on social media, or with friends, family, and colleagues you think might enjoy it as well.
2: This episode was brought to you by Azo Network.
0: We'll be back soon with more discussions about science.